Security cameras captured the image of a woman dragging a blue suitcase through the busy streets of London for two hours. The woman then left the suitcase at an abandoned house before driving to Devon to dispose of it. No one knew that in the suitcase was a decapitated corpse. Welcome back to our channel. Today, we will come to the very horror and haunting case of Gemma Mitchell who murdered the old woman Mikan Chong. The scariest thing is how Gemma Mitchell did this case. She used a stick to beat Mikan Chong until her skull was broken, then cut off the victim's head and stuffed it in a suitcase to walk around the busy streets of London without fear. This case has caused great shock in the community and made many people feel fear and pain. The fact that a human can do such brutal things has made many people feel fear and lose faith in humans. When we learn about Gemma's motives, we are chilled to the bone by her crimes. Join us through the door of darkness and investigate this horror case. Our narrative for the day takes place on the northwest outskirts of London. One item is likely the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the term Wembley. The most famous landmark in the surrounding area is unquestionably Wembley Stadium. But contrary to what you might believe, there is a great deal more to the old suburb of London. Wembley is an ancient place that dates back hundreds of years and derives its name from an old English place name that meant Wembley Meadow. In 1547, there were only six homes in the area that would later become Wembley. Since that time, it has developed into one of the largest suburbs of London and now boasts a population of little more than 100,000 people. However, Wembley has also been subjected to its fair share of adversity. After the Second World War, when more than 9,000 bombs damaged almost half of all residential homes in the neighborhood, its position in London's economy began to lose some of its importance, and this trend continued after the war ended. In fact, bombs continue to be discovered in this day and age. And in May of 2015, Construction workers who were working close to Wembley Stadium discovered a device that weighed 50 kilograms and yet constituted a significant threat to human life. Not to worry, this was detonated in a safe manner later on. Even the less costly homes in Wembley typically sell for more than £1 million, which is equivalent to around $1.2 million. This is due to the location of the neighborhood, which makes it one of the most expensive places in the world to reside. Despite this, we find the home and life of Mikan Chong, also known as Deborah, right here in this location. Mikan Chong's national identity was deeply rooted in Malaysia. She migrated to the United Kingdom at some point in her life despite having been born and raised in Kuala Lumpur. Deborah had a lodger living with her when she moved to the Wembley neighborhood in 2004, and her house on Chaplin Road had two stories. She attended the Emanuel Center Church in Edgware, which was approximately six miles to the north of where she lived, and she was a member of the congregation there. In addition, she was a fervent Christian, and as such, 
She went to church and Holy Spirit evenings on a regular basis. The vibrant woman's neighbors described her as lovely and odd at the same time. She would pop over to the houses of her neighbors on a regular basis for a cup of tea and a chat. And because she was such a devotee of church and choir, she would frequently sing while she was there. Deborah was able to meet a lot of people throughout the years because she was an active member of the church, which, of course, aided in her integration into the community of Wembley. This turned out to be a really advantageous social situation for her. And being the outgoing woman that she was, a good number of the people she ran into throughout the course of her life ended up becoming friends. But Deborah's life was not without its challenges, and regrettably, she struggled with a number of issues related to her mental health and was eventually diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia as well as acute stress. Deborah was fortunate in that she did have a number of individuals on whom she could rely. Although none of Deborah's family members lived in the area, she did have a lodger as well as a number of friends from the church. And one of those people she grew close with was a woman who went by the name of Gemma Mitchell and was 38 years old. Gemma Mitchell was an osteopath who had previously lived in Australia for seven years and had opted to move back to the UK in 2015. Gemma Mitchell was one of those people. Her mother and sister lived in the neighborhood of Brent, which is located just to the north of Wembley. As a consequence of all of this, she made the decision to move in with them. Gemma comes from a family that has a decent amount of wealth. The young lady received her primary education in a private school before enrolling in King's College London. There, she earned a degree in human sciences and completed a course in experimental anatomy as part of her curriculum. In the past, the family's financial situation was rather healthy. Her mother had held a position in the British Foreign Office in Australia, where she was based. It is estimated that the family house in London is worth approximately $5 million, which is equivalent to £4 million. However, it is unfortunate that they appeared to have arrived at a period when things were more difficult. The house had fallen into disrepair to a significant degree and required immediate maintenance. Both Gemma and Deborah referred to themselves in the same way, stating that they were devoted Christians with a strong commitment to their faith. And I think it's safe to assume that this is how the two of them first became acquainted. In the year 2020, it was arranged through the church. Due to a lack of appropriate licensing, Gemma was unable to practice osteopathy in the United Kingdom. Because there is no lawful transfer between the practices in Australia and the United Kingdom, she was effectively without a job. However, after developing a close relationship with Deborah, Jimmy offered Deborah her assistance as a spiritual healer in the hope that it might improve Deborah's mental health. Now, obviously, this was not going to do anything to alleviate Deborah's ongoing troubles, and because her schizophrenia appeared to be getting worse, she was prescribed harsher medicine by the spring of 2021. Clearly, 
This was not going to help Deborah in any way. Those who knew her well regarded her as fragile and prone to acting in an unpredictable manner. And over the course of the past few months, she developed an unhealthy fixation on Prince Charles and Boris Johnson. Deborah believed she could communicate with Prince Charles through YouTube videos, which led her to feel she had a parasocial relationship with him. When you think about it, this is quite a tragic tale. Deborah frequently pretended that Prince Charles and Boris Johnson were about to walk through the door at any moment when she was setting the dinner table for them. In addition, after sending them a number of strange letters, a referral to mental health services was made. She was given a fresh regimen of medication soon after she had been admitted to the medical center for the first two weeks of her treatment. And despite the fact that she didn't want to do it, her bodies managed to get her into doing it anyway. After then, life, for the most part, went back to its previous state of normalcy. And despite the fact that Deborah's friends were worried about her mental health, summer was just around the corner, which meant that there would soon be longer days with more sunshine. But it seemed as though Deborah would never experience summer. As of June 11, 2021, she was nowhere to be found. On June 11, 2021, Deborah's lodger became concerned since he was no longer able to locate her or get in touch with her. And he was aware that, given the state of her mental condition at the time, it was prudent to contact authorities as soon as possible. Since Deborah's lodger had seen her just the day before, it is reasonable to assume that she hadn't been gone for very long. This was confirmed by surveillance footage taken on June 9, 2021, which showed Deborah traveling down Chaplin Road while being escorted by him. It was seen that the elderly woman could not walk very well. Hence, it would have been difficult for her to avoid being transported if she had been on the run. As time went on, it turned out to be increasingly obvious that Devre had been the victim of an extraordinary occurrence. She had never vanished in this manner before, and given her history of mental illness as well as her medical ailments, the authorities saw this as painting a very worrying picture. However, not everyone was as quiet as Devre, despite the fact that she was. Gemma was the one who broke the news to the lodger that Deborah had traveled back to Malaysia and was spending time with her loved ones there. Gemma claims that Deborah had the intention of taking a mental health break by moving back in with her parents for a year. Now, this didn't go over very well with the officers, did it? Deborah most certainly would have needed to take a flight back in order to get to Malaysia but her passport showed that she had no recent travel history. In addition to this, there were no reports of her leaving the house. No local taxi firms had offered her a ride, and there was no activity in her bank accounts that showed she used any form of public transportation. The days went into weeks, and there were still no reports of Deborah being spotted for certain. But after being missing for 16 days, a very nasty find was discovered just as the police were beginning to get more involved in the case. 
A little beach community known as Sol Combe can be found roughly 300 kilometers from Wembley. And to tell you the truth, there is not much more that can be said about it. The town of Sol Combe can be found in South Devon, and it is known for its stunning beaches and lush landscape. And as you would have guessed, a significant number of tourists travel to the region each year. However, it came to light that a woman who was vacationing in the region discovered something that was significantly greater than what she had anticipated seeing there. On June 27, 2021, the mother and her family were strolling in a forested area along Bennett Road in Saul Combe when they were attacked. She had been strolling down some old, mossy steps when she came upon the terrifying sight that awaited her at the foot of the stairs. A decomposing body could be seen lying nearby, and the head was nowhere to be seen. Emergency. Hello, I just came across a dead body. Okay, you can proceed with your call. What kind of a crisis are you facing? I recently came across a dead body. Okay, a body. Are they taking any breaths? They are not alive anymore. They appear to have perhaps resided there for a few days or any other amount of time. Is that correct? Okay, just give me a moment of your time. Let's put a cork in this. Where exactly are we? On the road. Yeah. Which path are you now taking? I'm in Saul Combe. You have now arrived in Saul Combe. Sorry. Let me take a look. I am able to possibly populate the area where you are. Benetro, are you actually pretty close to the port? We've traveled all the way up from North Sand Beach. Hang on. Okay, the North Sand Bay Road is visible to me, yes. Benetro, yeah, you are now located on Benetro. The authorities were contacted without delay and soon after they arrived at the scene. The body was discovered by forensic investigators to have been dumped beside a church business card and other passages from the Bible. It came as a terrible shock when it was determined that the deceased person was Mikan Chong, also known by her nickname Deborah. A post-mortem examination was performed but it was unable to ascertain the reason for her passing because of the level of decomposition her body had reached. However, what it could affirm is that she had sustained a fracture to her skull in addition to multiple other injuries that are consistent with an assault, and that her head had not been removed by animal activity. The time range of Deborah's disappearance was comparable to the period of time that the pathologist determined Deborah had been dead for around two weeks. As a result of the case being reclassified as a homicide, police increased their attempts to identify the person responsible for her death. Surprisingly, it didn't take long for them to identify a person who might have been responsible for the crime. The footage from the surveillance cameras placed around Deborah's house captured some very concerning activity. And when the police investigated Deborah's circle of acquaintances, Gemma became an increasingly important target for them to focus on. When Deborah was still alive, she frequently conducted spiritual sessions in her garden, 
and Gemma was frequently present for many of those sessions. In fact, Many of Deborah's acquaintances stated that she had confided in them that Gemma and Jesus were helping her get better. At least up until a week before Deborah went missing, the two ladies were very close to one another. But then things changed. It would appear that the two had recently disagreed about financial matters. And naturally, this piqued the officer's interest. But let's put the plot on hold for a second and concentrate on Gemma's true identity in the meantime. She stated on a professional website that she was sensitized to subjects in neuroanatomy, genetics, and the dissection of human cadavers when she was studying and subsequently working in osteopathy in Australia. This claim was made while she was in Australia. And as was mentioned earlier, once she moved back to England in 2015, she was unable to continue working in her field of profession, and as a direct consequence of this inability, she has not worked anywhere else ever since. Even though Gemma and her mother were residing in the family home in Brent, which belonged to Gemma's family, the house was in dire need of repair. It was said that the apartments were stuffed to the gills with rubbish and damaged furniture and some of the rooms were completely inaccessible. There were cardboard boxes and suitcases, chest freezers stuffed with food, worn-out beds, and various construction items strewn about the place. It was said that the kitchen was filthy, with rotten food spread all over the stove, and numerous bits of paperwork covering all of the surfaces of the room. The renovations on the second level of the property were incomplete. The walls, ceilings, and roof were all unfinished, and there was no roof on the building. The bathroom was filthy and in a bad state of repair, and the entire location gave off the impression that it belonged to a hoarder. And this is where Deborah and Gemma start to have disagreements with one another. Now, Gemma was in dire need of funds in order to make necessary repairs to the family house and supposedly Deborah had offered to give her 200 grand to assist. But Deborah had a change of heart, and in the end she advised Gemma to sell the house and spend the money on whatever she wanted because life is too short to worry about such things. In a subsequent message, she informed Gemma that additional buildings would result in increased financial expenditures, money that she does not now possess at all. There was no obligation for Deborah to pay Gemma the money. She was free to do so. And to tell you the truth, who in their right mind would just hand over 200,000 pounds to a friend without expecting anything in return? And as you can undoubtedly surmise by now, this is the point at which the relationship began to deteriorate. And during the course of the next few days, Gemma's behavior toward Deborah became increasingly demanding and hostile. On April 8, 2021, Deborah had finally reached her breaking point. She sent Jimmy a text message with the following message. I don't want you to come to me or my house until you've sold the house. She meant that until Gemma's house had been sold. I am completely and utterly freaked out. And of course, she was nowhere to be found just three days after this event. A multitude of security cameras, 
to our great relief, enabled us to fill in all of the blanks in this time frame. At 6.15 on, on the morning of June 11, Jimmy is spotted dragging a suitcase and a bag away from her abandoned property. She is going somewhere. In addition to that, she had a hat on at the time. By 6.40 in the morning, she had already changed her clothes, covered her face with a scarf, and stowed her backpack inside of the luggage. She can be seen on the CCTV tape walking in the direction of Deborah's house. At 7.56 in the morning, the cap was removed. Despite this, she can be seen walking around with the luggage and the mask on her face. It is merely a supposition on our part, but we believe that Deborah was brutally killed within the next four hours. Because at 12.59 p.m., once more, Gemma is the subject of a photograph taken by a security camera. This time, while holding both of the suitcases in your hands. As she attempted to move both of them around, it appeared that each of them weighed a considerable amount. Gemma planned to utilize Deborah's personal and financial data to create a will. Therefore, the smaller bag very certainly held these documents. These documents were important materials for Gemma to have in her possession. She then placed a call to have a cab take her and the two suitcases back to the location where she lived. However, as can be seen in the transcript, she would have to wait for a total of 14 minutes before they could pick her up. And at the precise time of 4.16 in the afternoon, after her trip, she had a large blue bag with her when she came home. In the later hours of that day, Gemma went to Esty. Thomas Hospital, which is situated in the heart of London, to get treatment for her fractured finger. She explained her condition to the medical professionals by saying that she had accidentally jammed it in a door. In the days that followed, Gemma sent a number of bogus emails to a charity that helps find missing people in an effort to conceal the fact that she was responsible for the crime. She even informed Deborah's lodger via WhatsApp that she had left the country to go see her family when she left the country to visit them. After a few more days had passed, Gemma found herself back on the road on June 26 at 8.30 in the morning. Surveillance footage taken from a camera placed just across the street from her home captured her placing the bag inside a gray Volvo. It was not her personal vehicle. It was the gray Volvo. The night before, she had borrowed it from a firm that specializes in automobile rentals. Gemma then reactivated the phone number of a neighbor who had recently passed away and carried it with her as her own source of communication, leaving her own phone at home in a stark attempt to fool investigators. This added an extra layer of cunning and sneakiness to Gemma's already devious and sneaky scheme. She was observed by a surveillance camera as she entered the convenience store while she was stopping at a gas station on the way down to Saul Colmby. And after driving roughly 320 kilometers to the southwest to reach the coastal town, she eventually parked her vehicle close to Bennett Road at approximately 9.12 p.m. After that, she disposed of the body somewhere else, and then 41 minutes later, 
the same camera saw her leaving the scene. Now, despite being captured on camera by multiple surveillance cameras, Gemma believed that her strategy was proceeding very smoothly. However, there was one aspect of her sophisticated plan that not even she was able to correctly anticipate. She was driving back to London when the tight or on the rental vehicle she was driving blew out, and as a result, she had no choice but to pull into a service station and call for help. A mechanic by the name of Lee Garden was dispatched to change the wheel on her vehicle, and he can still vividly recall the peculiar experience he had with the customer to this day. She gave off the impression of being perplexed and was extremely distracted, but she maintained that he must not go into the trunk of her car, much less put a tiger in there. In addition to this, she desired to save the old tie or that was deflated. Lee also mentioned that the vehicle had a peculiar odor coming from it. There was a musty odor, as if someone had slept in there without any ventilation for a whole night. And it was sad for him that he was unaware of this at the time, because that odor was the smell of death. After having her flat tie or patched, Gemma drove the Volvo back to its owner and then went home, where she deposited the blue suitcase on the roof of a shed belonging to one of her neighbors. The body of Deborah, who had been beheaded, was discovered the very following day. The authorities estimated that it would take another five days to find her skull. The evidence that Gemma was presented with was, to put it mildly, pretty damning. And as a result of all of this information, the authorities made the decision to pay her a brief visit at the courthouse at 12 in the morning. Good. I'm sorry, may I ask what your name is? Gemma. Do you, Gemma, want to leave your room? Hand. Merely so that I may see your hand. You're in the clear, Gemma. My current status is that I'm being held on suspicion of murder. Okay, you don't have to say anything. It's possible that they'll come to your defense. Mention one question so that you will have something to rely on later in court. Whatever it is that you say, the evidence might support it. Okay. After you have been handcuffed. Okay. Sorry. Who is currently present in the building? Mother. Who is your mom? Okay. If you wish to, someone should pick that up for you. Is anyone else inside? Simply your mother. Is it only your mother, or is there another person within as well? Okay, got it. Do you wish to bring her in, or do you wish to bring in that? We're going to pop in here for a quick sec. Is that okay? After taking her into jail, the authorities inspected the home thoroughly for any evidence that could connect Deborah to her assailant while it was under lock and key. Inside, they discovered a forgery of her will that had been crafted on Gemma's computer, as well as her personal and financial data. Regarding the will, Gemma had designated both herself and her mother as the beneficiaries of the entirety of Deborah's estate which at the time was estimated to be worth approximately £700,000 or $800,000.
as their first official interrogation with her began only two days after they had taken her into custody, it was evident that the authorities were prepared to question her. One that contained a mountain's worth of evidence and queries in its compartments. And according to what they've heard, the individual who was driving the Volvo waited in the vehicle the entire time with the windows rolled down, the front door open, and the passenger door open despite the fact that it was practically pouring rain outside and there was a strong wind. Gemma, could you please explain? No comments. Did you agree, Gemma, that the car had a putrid odor? Emitted the odor of a deceased person. No comments. The putrid odor of Deborah's decaying carcass filled the room. Is that what you mean, Gemma? No comment. Is it just me? Or can you really feel the snarky wrath rising up in her icy heart toward the end there? Now, is it just me, or can you really sense that? Gemma was in serious legal trouble unless she could provide the court with a rational explanation for why she dragged her back to Deborah's house, back to her own house, and then all the way down to Devon, where Deborah's body was discovered. At this moment in time in the history of the globe, it is estimated that there are 950,000 surveillance cameras spread out around the city of London. It is completely beyond my comprehension how she could have ever thought that walking 12 miles with that suitcase would be possible. I have no doubt that she, at some point, came to the conclusion that there was absolutely no chance that she would survive this and she did not speak up once during any of the interviews that were conducted, continuing her refusal to communicate despite repeated attempts to get her account of events. Her trial didn't begin for more than a year after the incident. On the 11th of October, 2022, Courtroom Well of the Old Bailey served as the setting for the proceedings. Richard Jari was in charge of the defense while Deanna here was in charge of the prosecution in the case. During the actual proceedings of the trial, Judge Richard Marks served as the presiding judge. Not only did Gemma Mitchell assert that she did not kill Deborah, but she also reneged on the offer to testify in the victim's defense. Due to the absence of DNA evidence, her legal team maintained that there was no proof to back the assertion that Deborah's body had been stored in the back. They argued that there was no evidence to substantiate the claim. At the same time, there was no sign of a fight having taken place in Deborah's residence. The court was informed that the injuries to her head could have been caused either by being first against a surface or by a weapon. Both scenarios were presented as possible causes of the injuries. In the end, however, neither the murder scene nor Deborah's house contained any weapons of any kind. No surprise. But the motivation was financial gain. The prosecution contended that Gemma Mitchell murdered Miku and Chong and then falsified her mother's will in order to steal money from her estate and use it to pay for necessary home improvements. When it was brought to light that Gemma had gone on a date to London Zoo with someone she had met online in the interim between the time of Deborah's death and her trip to Saul Colmby, it brought to light a distinct level of callousness on Gemma's part.
It is important to emphasize the fact that Gemma completed her education with a degree in human sciences, which included a subject in experimental anatomy. This demonstrates that she was capable of removing a person's head from their body, despite the fact that it is unclear why she would have done so. After only seven hours of discussion on October 27, 2022, the jury came to the conclusion that Gemma Mitchell was responsible for the death of Mikan Chong. As a result of this verdict, Gemma Mitchell was formally convicted of the crime. Because of a change in UK law, Gemma's punishment was front-page news across the country. Due to the fact that the sentencing phase of the trial was broadcast on television, Gemma became the first woman in the United Kingdom to have her sentence filmed, and the first convicted murderer in England and Wales to be sentenced on live television. You have been given a sentence of life in jail by the court and the minimum length of imprisonment that you will be compelled to serve regardless of the circumstances is going to be 34 years. You got an early start from your residence and brought a huge suitcase with you. Based on the footage from the surveillance cameras, it was clear that the suitcase was either empty or contained very minimal belongings. In it, you traveled to her location using the public transportation system. And once you were there, you remained there for more than five hours. You had brought the suitcase that you were using to the house with you, and it was now noticeably stuffed and somewhat heavy. There is not a shred of doubt in my mind that you murdered her while you were present at her home. And you have not provided any reason for this. Given that you did not speak at any point during your interviews with the police and that you chose not to testify in court, I can only come to the conclusion that you went to her residence early that morning with the purpose of carrying out your plan. You have not even displayed the slightest sign of regret, and it seems as though you are in complete denial about what you have done. Despite the fact that, in my opinion, the evidence against you amounted to an overwhelming body of work, the sentence remained the same. Life in prison with a mandatory minimum sentence of 34 years. This indicates that she will not be eligible for release until the 10th of July in the year 2055. A statement that was made by Deborah's sister, who lives in Malaysia, and which was read into the record during Jim's trial, was heard by the Malaysian court. In this remark, she said that we still do not comprehend the manner in which she passed away. Was she in any pain? This enigma will torment me for the rest of my life. Because Gemma has never admitted that she was responsible for Deborah's death, there are many questions that have not been answered up to this very day. However, the reason seems quite obvious to me. It's due to greed. The bare facts of this situation are rather surprising. It's quite upsetting to learn how Deborah's tale was ultimately resolved. She was a fragile woman who was looking for assistance for her deteriorating mental health. Not only had she rallied on Gemma for support, but she had also extended to her friend the generous gift of a significant quantity of money from her savings in order to assist her in a difficult situation. And Gemma. It was obvious that she was taking advantage of her fragility for her own benefit, 
Tragically, all of Jimmy's past actions would culminate in the commission of a truly heinous crime. After her conviction, several of her former acquaintances spoke out about their interactions with her and shared their stories. It has come to light that Gemma had a history of attempting to steal money and business partners, suggesting that this way of thinking was not new to her. It is clear that she had always been deceitful and untrustworthy. As we conclude this investigation, I want to express my gratitude for your attention and consideration. If you found this case fascinating or if you gained any new knowledge from it, please subscribe to the channel as it would be of assistance to me. We value your thoughts and invite you to share them in the comments section below. As always, I will be back soon with another case. Until then, please look out for one another and watch your step. Thank you and goodbye.